Okay, people, you'll notice um, on the emails and uh, on the Facebook and the Twitter, everything I've been doing lately, the name of the series changed because Lunch and Learn is only for those who are here having lunch. The rest of the people listening to this online are having the learning without the lunch. So we actually changed this in the name of the series. You'll always find this in the catalog of all the um, audios. You'll find it under Know Thyself and Know Thy Relationships. Okay? So that's the name of the series. This, me, this month's topic, and we'll soon discuss why it's this month's topic. This month's topic is the act of being happy. This morning I got back an uh, a, um, email from a friend, and she asked me, well, how am I supposed to read this? Acting, being happy, or being happy as an action? <laughs> so, no, we're going to soon discuss what exactly this means. But the title is The Act of Being Happy. Subtitle, There is a Commandment to Be Happy. How does one physically control or create an emotion? Learn techniques for being happy. There actually is a technique on how to create happiness. And that's the important conversation today. So, the act of being happy. Let's talk about this. Happiness is an emotion. Because it's an emotion, so therefore, there opens up a paradigm of reactiveness. It's not proactive, it's reactive. If it's an emotion, it is what it is. And as children, as we grow up, we do have that paradigm that being happy is a trait, a character, characteristic. Um, it's something that comes from the external environment. If good things are going on, then I'm in a happy mood. If, God forbid, not good things are going on, I'm not in a happy mood. It doesn't lead to us thinking that there's something to be proactive. Oh, let's be happy. I mean, it makes a great bumper sticker and stuff like that. But the question over here is that how do we create happiness? Then we start learning biology and things start kicking into a new dimension. We start learning about endorphins. We start learning about all these new things, chemicals in the brain, chemical balances, which leads us even into a greater passive reactiveness rather than a proactive approach. Let's go out and be happy. So that paradigm is really what we're going to deal with today. How real is that paradigm? Can I decide right now I want to be happy? I'm not happy, but I want to be happy. Is there steps? Is there practical steps we can do? And thus you have the title, the act of being happy. We're going to do something right now because we want to be happy. That's what we're going to discuss right now. Okay? And this, from a Jewish perspective, takes on a whole new dimension. We're not talking about just a psychological approach, which we're going to be dealing with in a moment. Let's talk about a Jewish approach. Maybe you people have heard this. It's actually a famous nigun song out there, which is called Mitzvah Gidola Liot Bisimcha. Literally translated, it is a commandment. Not just a regular commandment, mitzvah gidola. The word gidola means big. It's a big commandment to be happy. Now here is a very important fundamental belief in Judaism. Wherever there is a mitzvah, there must be freedom of choice. How can God command us to do something if we don't have the freedom of choice to do it? So now from the Jewish perspective, the fact that I'm introducing that it's a mitzvah to be happy, that has totally abolished the paradigm of reactiveness. It can't be reactive. God can't command for me something that He only empowered me to be reactive to. So if Hashem is telling me, Thou shall be happy, I now know that it's within my freedom of choice and my power to at this moment, regardless of what's going on around in my life, outside and inside, I can right now decide I could be happy. Now, obviously, that decision is a beautiful decision, and we can have a board meeting and vote on it, but then there is a problem, you know. <laughs> Many things, you know, they tell this cute story about this rabbi who had a board, 
and the board uh, was voting they should up his salary. And he said, please, please don't vote on that. And he said, why? He said, because I'm still having a problem raising last year's salary. <laughs> so it's all nice that we're going to vote. Okay, we've made a decision. We can be happy. That's not, it's not a decision process. It's a process. And that's what we're going here to discuss now. Okay? So that's what we're talking about. It's not a reaction to chemical balances. It's, and by the way, I just want to be very respectfully and very, very straightforward. There is a scenario in which we need to introduce a proactiveness of taking medicine to balance chemicals. There's nothing wrong with going to a doctor when you slip and break your hand and you need a cast. There's nothing wrong with going to a doctor and saying, listen, I'm going through something and he'll tell you it's just an issue of a chemical balance and either for a period of time or for an extended period of time or for until Mashiach comes, you're going to have to have a medicine which is going to help you balance your stuff. That's it. I mean, we take medicine for cholesterol, we take medicine for other stuff, and then there's a medicine for these chemicals, endorphins, whatever it is. But I'm not embracing that. That I can't give a lunch and learn on. That you'll have to go ahead and deal with someone who's not a psychologist, but a psychiatrist who's licensed to give medicine. A psychologist will decide if you need that or not. But I am here to talk about the act of freedom of choice. I'm here to create a real paradigm shift that there are other ways to create happiness than just being reactive to what's going on in your life. <laughs> and then, of course, there's always ice cream and chocolate, right? <laughs> but, with that, but with that being a fact, we're going to talk about from our perspective, okay? So, guys, I want to line up the ducks for today because while I'm telling you we're going to be talking about the primary and today's exploration is all about the act of being happy, I need to introduce some other concepts here in Kabbalah and Hasidut. So I want to share with you, we're going to be exploring today the half shekel, which happens to be in this week's Torah portion. We're going to be exploring the commandment of the half shekel. We're going to be exploring today the counter fiery half shekel. We'll introduce that in a moment. We're going to be exploring today Simcha Shel Mitzvah, the happiness, the joy of mitzvah performance, parenthetically speaking. You probably all heard of the Ari HaKadosh, the Arizal in Tzfat. Many of you probably went to his mikvah, and there's the grave over there. The Arizal testified upon himself that the only reason why he merited to his level of Ruach HaKodesh, the Holy Spirit slash prophecy, they're not one and the same, but for most of us we look at it as one and the same, is only because of his Simcha Shal Mitzvah, the joy with which he did mitzvot. So this is a biggie. Simcha Shal Mitzvah we're going to discuss today. And then we're going to discuss today Moses raising the head of the children of Israel. So I just wanted to line up the ducks because you guys came here to hear about the act of being happy. And of course, yours truly is about to go on a tantrum. And you might think, where are we going? It's all just ducks lining up for the final effect, okay? You will, before you leave here, have a very clear grasp on the act of being happy. So let's take it away, guys. Half shekel. So Moses gets a commandment from God. What is the commandment? The commandment is, you shall count the Jewish people. Count the children of Israel. Right? The opening verse of this week's Torah portion. Ki tisa et rosh Israel. And there's a very interesting detail in this mitzvah that actually carries until today. You are not allowed to count people. Even if you're counting them for a mitzvah. You will notice that when we're looking, we're counting the men over 13 for a minion. You'll probably notice the rabbi going or someone going, not one, not two, not three. We don't count. Another reason why we don't, another way that we don't count is, a famous way is, when you're looking for a minion, there's a famous verse that everyone knows. It's a famous song, Hoshia et Amecha. That verse has 10 words. So if you know that verse well and you know the order of the words, You'll see people by a minion counting a Shia SMH, but uh, we're missing four. Why do we do that? Because in this week's Torah portion, God clearly tells Moses, you are to have the Jews give a half shekel. You will count the half shekel and not the people so that a plague, it's in the verse, so that a plague will not break out amongst those that you count. Very interesting. In history... We once got into trouble. King David, for whatever reason, overlooked this law. He counted the soldiers, and the prophet admonished him. 
because a plague broke out amongst the soldiers. So we don't count people. You count the coin that the people give. And thus we find in the Torah, every single Jew has to give from the age of 20 to 60 because it counted the, the army aspect. They have to give a half coin. The rich cannot give more. The poor cannot give less. So we know exactly the amount of coins will equal the amount of people, and then we count the coins. Okay? So I'm introducing you to the mitzvah of the half shekel. With that being said, I want to introduce to you Moses had an issue. What was the issue Moses had? Moses, it says, Rashi quotes this, the famous Rabbi Shlomo Yitzchaki, 11th century commentator in France. No one, no one dares to try to learn Chumash or Gemara without the help of Rashi. The first thing you ever learn when you're in Cheder, when you start approaching, is always Rashi's approach. Rashi doesn't quote to us no homiletics, no mystical stuff. He wants to talk to the five-year-old who's first starting to learn Chumash. And Rashi tells us, Rashi says that the verse says, Zeh yitnu, this you shall give. When you say the word this, means that you're pointing to it. This you shall give. It doesn't say such you shall give or they shall give. It says this. So Rashi says from here we know that God showed Moses what a half shekel looks like. So for that reason he quotes the sages and he says that Moses niskasha, he had a difficulty, he had a struggle. He couldn't understand the half shekel issue. So God showed him a fiery half shekel and said, Zeh, this is what they shall give. Now, Moses was a good Jew. He understood what money looked like. He knew exactly what a shekel looked like. He knew what a half shekel coin looked like. Why the issue? Moses is niskasha. He, he's struggling with this. Our sages teach us. In Hasidus it explains that Moses was struggling with a rule in Kabbalah. What is the rule in Kabbalah? The rule is less shchinta sharia elo ba'asar shlim. The divine presence does not rest in anything other than a complete. There's no halves. That's a rule. With that being the case, Moses is wondering, why would God command a half shekel? If the rule in Zohar is that God rests in the whole, in the complete, why are we introducing the half? That was God's answer to Moses saying that there's another half to their half which completes their half. And that's when Moses, God, Moses saw, God showed him, the Jew, the individual Jew will give his half shekel, which then will bring forth the counter fiery half shekel from God, put the two halves together, and we have complete. Please, remember I'm just lining up ducks. Store this in your mind. Let's go to a next step. The next step is that we have a very interesting Kabbalistic and Hasidic teaching on this week's Torah portion because when the verse states that Moses should count the Jewish people, the word it uses for count is not your normal word for counting. You know in Hebrew to count is lispor. Ancient Hebrew you could say moneh, he's counting. It says over here, ki tisa. The word tisa actually means to lift, raise up, rise up. So if you read the verse, God told Moses, you shall lift up the head of the children of Israel. We need to understand what this means. How does that fit into the picture? And then if you read now this verse, you're now reading a beautiful concept, which we'll soon discuss, that God's telling Moses, you lift the head of the Jewish people. And when you lift the head of the Jewish people, that will empower them to give their half a coin. The Torah tells us that a half a shekel, a shekel is made up of 20 gera, which means a half a shekel is 10 gera. For those of you who study Kabbalah, Hasidus, Tanya, the number 10 will immediately ring in your mind that what God's asking the Jew to give is his ten faculties, his three intellects, and his seven emotions. So Moses is going to lift the head, which empowers us to go ahead and give our half shekel, our ten gerah, and in return, 
what will happen from that is that then we will receive from God the fiery half shekel, which completes the whole picture. And now we need to make sense of this. And at this point, you should begin to worry, <laughs> wonder, uh, what does this have to do with the act of happiness? Okay? So let's go ahead and discuss this. What does it mean that Moses lifts the head of Israel? What it means is that the head is the finite power of intellect, the linear. There is a capacity of intellect. There is that which you can understand and there is that which you cannot understand. What does it mean to lift the head? What it means to lift the head is to draw down the infinite circular faith of the Jew into the linear perception of the Jew which now changes the paradigm of the Jew, which now empowers the Jew to bring his ten faculties to the Holy Temple. This is the Kabbalistic interpretation of counting the Jews. Moses lifts their head. What simply means is the circular faith, which is greater than the capacity of the linear intellect mind. Moses helps us absorb, we'll soon see how that works, the faith, so it's not just an encompassing I believe. It's a tangible, palatable, I understand my faith, which then empowers you to bring your intellect and your emotions into the service of God, which then brings back the reciprocal, greater, fiery half shekel, which is a whole different dimension, as we'll soon discuss, of the ten faculties of the soul. So guys, let's talk about happiness. Number one, we're now in the month of Adar. This is a leap year. We actually have two months of Adar. We're now in the month of Adar. Now, I mentioned to you before that the Jew, on any day of the year, has the commandment of mitzvah gedolah liot b'simcha, the great commandment to be happy. So let me tell you what the month of Adar is all about. On the month of Adar, we're taught, mishenichnas Adar marbim b'simcha. So every day you have to be happy. But once Adar enters, then you have to be marbim, you have to multiply, make greater the joy, which is what drove me to actually give this lecture. Because what does that mean? What does it mean to be happy? What does it mean to be extra happy? And how is that a mitzvah? Okay? So that's what we're going to talk about. To understand that, I need to share with you that the concept of joy is a soulmate with the concept of love. When you talk about joy, you're talking about love. In the service of God, there is two forms of service. There is serving God out of love, and there is serving God out of fear. It's actually two commandments. There is the commandment that you say every day in your Shema, the Ahafta et Hashem lekecha. You shall love God. Then there's the mitzvah of, and God, your Lord, you shall fear. The fearing God service does not bring to joy. It brings to justice. It brings to a higher perfection. You won't, oh, it's okay, don't worry. He loves me anyway. But joy comes from love. So if we want to talk about the greatest level of joy, which we'll soon talk about, we're talking about the joy of mitzvah. The joy of mitzvah, of doing a mitzvah, works hand in hand with the service of love. When you perform out of love, you're now embracing joy. It's very hard to do mitzvah with joy when the reason why you're doing the mitzvah is because you're afraid if not, you're going to go to hell. You're going to lose your whole marriage. Your kids are not going to be healthy, God forbid. You're going to go into foreclosure. I better not start up with God. Let me do the mitzvah. You ain't exactly going to be dancing to have an agila when you do a mitzvah like that. But when you're experiencing love, I'm doing this out of love. I love God. I love serving God then you can do mitzvot out of joy. So we need to talk to, about this for a moment. In Kabbalah, there are two levels of joy, two levels of love. And because there's two levels of love, there's going to be two levels of joy. Let's go ahead and talk about these two levels of love. The first level of love is what I'm going to be spending with you the most time on. Because the first level of love is the act of being happy. When I say the act of being happy, it means that there's two types of love because love, just like joy, is an emotion. And yet, love, just like joy, has a commandment. Thou shall love God. 
So once again, we're abolishing that paradigm that love is a reaction. Love is not a reaction. Love is something you can be proactive. I want to learn to love. I want to learn to love this individual. I want to learn to love God. Were it not to be true what I'm saying, then you would have 612 commandments. There's no way God can command to love him, make it a mitzvah, which entails reward and punishment if there is no freedom of choice. And if there's a freedom of choice, then I can decide, you know what, God? You've really been not nice to me lately. I've really been going through some really rough times. I'm not really feeling that I love you, but there's a mitzvah. So let me sit down now, put that all aside, and create love. The same thing with joy, because joy and love are soulmates. Where there's love, there's joy. So what we're going to embrace today is, how do you do that? How do you create, not react, but create, actively create a love for Hashem, a love for mitzvot, which leads to doing mitzvot with great joy? The answer to this is, the action of creating love is hitbonenut. The word hitbonenut in English means concentration. Yes, I'm not using the word meditation. It's a different format. I'm using the word of concentration. So let's talk about this for a moment. You want to now love. Either you want to love God, you want to love a fellow Jew, you want to love studying Torah and doing mitzvot, you want to love our holy land of Israel, and right now you're just not there, but right now I want to do that. The first thing you need to do is hit boninut. Sit yourself down, it's time for concentration. But you understand that concentration, understanding, a deep concentration on your understanding will change your perception, will change your paradigm, will create love, will create joy. That's the formula. I'm going to go over it again. So you have the bonanut, the concentration. We'll soon see what we're going to concentrate about. The concentration, which creates a new perception, which creates a new paradigm, which creates a new emotion. For here we're talking about love, which creates a new emotion, joy. There is a step-by-step -step process, and that's what I'm talking to you about. But before I can talk to you about the process, I need to talk to you about the prerequisite. What is the prerequisite to this Hitponenut? The prerequisite to the Hitponenut is very simple. It is to understand, to have a mission, purpose, fulfillment. If you don't know what your mission is, you don't know what your purpose is, you don't know what your fulfillment is, then you cannot have an itbonanut that will lead to love and joy. Because the lower level of love, which is the act of love, the act of joy, begets what we call in Hasidus and in Hebrew, simple Hebrew, mivukash. Mivukash means I'm looking for something. And as I get what I'm looking for, I'm starting to love, I'm starting to feel happy. But if you're not looking for anything, if you have no mission, purpose, fulfillment, then anything you're going to do isn't really going to bring you happiness. It's a temporary, quote-unquote, drug. You eat chocolates, creates endorphins, and it lasts until you realize you gained four pounds and now you're depressed. But when you have a mivukash, there's something that I exist for. There is something that I'm striving for. There is a mission. There is a purpose. And by reaching that, I have fulfillment. Now I can create love to what I'm doing. I can create love to he who gives me the opportunity of mission, purpose, and fulfillment of thereof. 
and that brings joy into what I'm doing. Now, if this be true in temporal purpose, mission, mission, purpose, and fulfillment, how much more so when we're about to engage in a mission, purpose, and fulfillment that exists in my life before I was born, while I live, and after I leave this world. So the Hidbonenut is as follows. The Hidbonenut is God is everything and everything is God. And thus my mission, purpose, and fulfillment is to find a oneness with God in everything and anything I do. If we have this simple Hidbonenut upon the verse, Shema Yisrael, Hashem Elokeinu, Hashem Echad. Hero Israel, God is our God, God is one. And we understand that the definition of monotheism to a Jew is not that there's one God and not many gods, but the ultimate definition of monotheism is that God is everything and everything is God and there's nothing but God. Then we can understand that this entire creation of a paradigm and perception of separation exists only so that I have the mission, purpose, and fulfillment to be able by freedom of choice to get past that separation and reintroduce the oneness of Hashem Echad between God and my soul and everything I do. And thus, all of a sudden, that understanding, that concentration which leads to the understanding that I have a mission, purpose, and fulfillment, that God is everything and everything is God, and that my purpose pre-me being born, while I live for 120 years, after my soul leaves this world, parenthetically speaking, not in my notes, but parenthetically speaking, one of the hugest issues we have is that we have a very famous painter who painted a picture of paradise where this God surrounded by naked women and fruits and food. And that's supposed to be paradise. That isn't paradise. That's a body's perception, a weak perception of pleasure. What is heaven? What is the afterlife? So let me share with you. I had a teacher who told me, Avrumi, Heaven and hell is one room. And in that room, a rabbi gives a shiur. For some it's heaven, and for some it's hell. <laughs> what is he saying? What he's telling me is that the ultimate pleasure of the soul is fulfillment. Fulfillment of the soul is to feel close and to bask within the divinity of God. That's what he's telling me. And that's the truth. So erase that... <laughs> whatever is painted over there on the chapel. It's not true. So when you realize that pre, during, post, my entire existence is Hashem Echad, now all of a sudden I have a real mission, a real purpose, a real fulfillment. Not only that, I get to thank God that I'm born with a perception that it's not so. God's in heaven, I'm on earth, and I will decide. Where in my earth I allow him to be and where I don't. Will I allow him to be in my kitchen or not, i.e. kosher? Will I allow him to be in my office or not, i.e. do I have a pushka, do I study Torah, do I have a mezuzah? Do I follow the laws when I'm in the office? Do I allow him into my bedroom or not, simply speaking? Do I keep the laws of mikvah or not? Do I allow him into my wardrobe? Is my clothing befitting of a Jew or not? So this concept where God gives me a starting point where the paradigm of separation is as real as the paradigm of unity allows me to earn my relationship with God, which makes it really mine. So all of a sudden, the hitbonenut of understanding that there is a mevukash, there is something I'm yearning for, there's something I want, and the closer I get to it, the happier I get. 
the more love I feel, the more fulfilled I'm being. Allows me to now create love for God, love for every single mitzvah that I do, which embraces the ultimate joy. Wow, I want to get somewhere and I'm getting there. I have a purpose, I have a meaning, I have a fulfillment, and every step that gets me there brings me joy. Now, contrary to Jewish mother's belief, the punishment of sin is not the guilt of your Yiddish mama. There's a different punishment which causes sadness. By realizing that I'm fighting against my intrinsic purpose, mission, fulfillment. If what I tick and what I'm all about on the most genetic DNA level where God is everything and everything is God is about being one with God, then all of a sudden I understand why sin at the time is pleasurable and gives a lot of joy. But every time after that there's the, oh, why did I do that? That oi comes from not guilt, not fear of punishment, but fear of the ultimate punishment. I am killing myself. My life is all about being one with God. Why did I just rip myself away from God? That is the shadow. You've heard me mention the ancient Chinese proverb many, many times. No light is complete without a shadow. That feeling of post-sin is the shadow of the feeling of doing a mitzvah. Where there's love, self-respect, joy, fulfillment, the shadow of that is really self-disgust, emptiness. So now we understand that the act of love, the act of happiness, really depends upon hitbonenut, concentration. But understand that the concentration is built upon the concept of there is something I'm here for. There is a mevukash for which I was sent down to this world, for why God created me. And when I find that mevukash and I understand it, I love he who is the mevukash, and I love every moment that I'm getting closer and running towards and being fulfilled by my mevukash. Thus, the true joy of mitzvah exists. Now my question is, where do you get this? So we understand what lifting the head means, right? We're now going to have a new it bonanut, concentration. Concentration is lifting your head. Where does that come from? Let's go back to the opening of the verse. I, I just wanted the ducks I lined up for you. And God told Moses, you shall lift the heads of the children of Israel. I also told you that what's called lifting the head is by giving the abstract, unintellectual, infinite faith a bridge into the linear, finite, intellectual mind. How does that happen? When Moses teaches Torah. Moses gave us faith by allowing us to see God. How did we see God? Primarily through the Torah that he brought us. We're now studying God. And secondly, through the miracles that he showed us that there's a hand behind the glove called nature. So it is this great glove called nature, but don't ever think that the glove is it. The glove is being worn by a hand, the hand of God. And when Moses shows us these miracles, we're starting to see that there's a hand that controls the glove. But primarily, it's not through miracles. Again, parenthetically speaking. There's a story of this rabbi who got a phone call. I know who it is. I mean, you guys probably know him also. His name is Rabbi Friedman, Manus Friedman. You may have uh, heard of him. He's a great lecturer. He's really a dynamic speaker and thinker. Not in that order, thinker and speaker. But uh, that's just because. I, I didn't mean to say he's not a good speaker. Well, okay, I better get foot out of my mouth. Let's go back to what I was saying. Rabbi Manus Friedman had a very interesting story. 
His son calls him up. There's a whole story with a miracle. His son is running a Chabad house somewhere. And this guy sponsored a huge big Lagba Omer parade. Whenever Lagba Omer comes out on Sunday, Chabad will make a big parade. There was one last year, if you remember, by the Gulf Stream. It's going to be one this year, God willing. It's a whole big thing with the Rav Shimon Bar Yochai. He, re- he requested children go out and rejoice in the day, not sit in school. So anyway, this guy sponsored it. It was mega bucks. And all of a sudden, weather forecast. Rain, 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 rain. Which means basically the whole thing's gonna. So he tells the rabbi, I don't understand. God wants us to do this. God controls the weather. What's going on here? So he said, I'll tell you. Let's go to the burial spot of the Rebbe, which is a very auspicious place to pray. The Rebbe is the one that taught us and started this like Boma parade thing in New York way back in the day. Even in the previous Rebbe's time, the Rebbe already started the first parade. Let's go and pray there and use this soul of a tzaddik to enhance our prayer and ask the Rebbe, please, <laughs> help us pray to Hashem that we need help here. Lo and behold, that area, there was no rain for those hours on Sunday. This is, to his mind, an open miracle. The clouds work in their ways. There was rain there, rain there. In this whole neighborhood on that Sunday, there wasn't rain for those day hours. This guy totally saw revelation, and therefore he started telling the rabbi, it's real. There is a God. I want to start putting a tefillin. I want to start learning about kosher. I want to start learning about this. Everything beautiful. So this Rabbi Friedman Jr. calls up Rabbi Manus Friedman, the senior, and is telling him, excitement, you won't believe it. Hashem pulled through for us. He made my job easier. I'm here to teach Torah. I'm here to help Jewish people embrace the Jewish way of life. And he sent me a miracle. And this guy is now putting on tefillin. And he's talking to his wife about kosher. And don't ask. What was Rabbi Manus Friedman's response? I really love his response. He said, I just want you to ask him one question. Next year, if it does rain on his parade, will he still be putting on tefillin? So please understand that more than it's Moses' job to perform miracles, miracles really isn't what it's all about. What it's all about is studying Torah. Because if the reason that you're putting on tefillin is because you saw a miracle, well, guess what? God may choose next time not to perform a miracle. Then what? So if we want to know what it means Moses lifts the head, yes, Every once in a while, it's very helpful for us that live in the mundane, overwhelmed with today's economy and health issues and world crisis to see a miracle. It does help. It's a nice uh, Tylenol to have every once in a while. But understand that the real lifting of the head is when you concentrate and study and Torah, learn how much more so when you deal with what the Zohar calls the soul of the Torah. Because the Talmud, And the methodological approach to law is the body of the Torah. The Hasidus is the soul of the Torah. There it talks about in a very palatable and tangible way how your mind can really understand what you believe in. I believe in Hashem Echad, and here you have literally today in the Chabad library after seven generations, there is thousands of books where you can use your analytical mind and absorb what you believe in Hashem Echad. So Moshe Rabbeinu's job is to lift your head. What does that mean? My friends, let's be practical. The job of Moses is to go ahead and lift our brain from the latest stock market movement, the latest fashion statement out of Paris, etc., etc., into a more eternal intrinsic mivukash purpose mission fulfillment that's simply what Moses does Moses lifts our head and once our head is not always worried whether my dress is the latest fashion and whether my portfolio went up or down or whether I have power once our head is lifted slightly out of wealth beauty and power into Hashem Echad. Now we have our brain in a position where we can concentrate on God. Hashem Echad. We can concentrate our, our most genetic, intrinsic mission, purpose, and fulfillment 
So the next time I do a mitzvah and I feel myself getting closer to God, reaching my fulfillment, that brings joy. Thus we're introducing the first level of love, which leads to the first level of joy. And it's all based on hard work. There is no pill in a bottle that will do this for you. It's learning Torah. It's making the oneness of God as real as your mortgage, as real as your bank account, as real as the way you look, the way you dress. That's what it's all about. Share with you one more parathetic story. And then we go to level two. In level two, I'm not going to be that long on. After the Rebbe's heart attack in 1978, so Dr. Weiss, who was the Rebbe's cardiologist, later on, almost like a year later, right before the high holidays, they were talking about a procedure, a test, and the Rebbe's talking, the Dr. Weiss is talking to the Rebbetson. And the Dr. Weiss asked the Rebbetson, is your husband, which is the Rebbe, blessed memory, is your husband afraid of pain? And the Rebbetson smiled and said, my husband's not afraid of pain, but he's extremely afraid of the high holidays that are coming up. Paradigm shift. That's the job of Moses. That's called lifting your head. It's where missing the morning prayer is as real as at 4 o'clock realizing that you didn't yet eat and you're getting a headache. You're getting cranky. To be able to realize that your soul is getting cranky. You've been up for a couple of hours yet and you haven't prayed. You haven't connected to God. When you realize that paradigm, when you embrace the Hashem Echad, when you absorb the Torah that Moses and all the other Moseses of all the other generations gave us, then you're able to have a mevukash that's real. And when you have a real mevukash, then you have a real purpose, a real mission, a real fulfillment. Walking down that yellow brick road, or shall we say blue and white brick road, will now create for you a real love, a real joy. Now we're talking about the act. You need to think. You need to study. Don't think without studying. Because then you create your own yara. Today we have a great generation. Everyone's spiritual. Everyone has thoughts about God. No one would dare have medical thoughts. That we have to study. But about God, everyone has something to say. It doesn't work. The only one who has something to say about God is God. And everything he has to say is in the Torah. So while everyone's running to great Kabbalists and then this one and bless me and this and that and look into my soul, look up, look down, tell me what my soulmate is, what business deal I should do. Let's start with the ABCs. Start learning Torah. That's the way to know God. And to know God creates an opportunity to love God. To love God is to live a life of happiness because I'm happy with what I'm doing. It's getting me to what I really want. Let's introduce love level number two and let's be quick because it's not part of today's class. That's a different type of love. You see, the first love and the first happiness was the act of loving God, the act of being happy. Now I want to introduce to you the second, which is the gift of loving God, the gift of being happy. You cannot work on this. You cannot actively create this. You can only be open for it. Thus, God told Moses, the Jewish people will give a half a coin. Let them produce the act of love, the act of joy. And then, once they've done everything they could, I will then give them the gift that completes their coin. And that is the fiery half shekel. As you know, in the world of Kabbalah, fire is a passionate, intense love. So God is telling Moses, you lift their head, teach them Torah, show them there's something beyond nature, teach them to concentrate, teach them to develop a taste, a real understanding of what the real and ultimate mission, purpose, and fulfillment is. When they concentrate on Hashem Achad, they'll love me. 
when they love me, they'll want nothing more than to be one with me. They'll understand that that is what lies in the DNA of every creation. God is everything and everything is God. And then when they understand that doing mitzvot, studying Torah gets them there, they'll do it with love, with joy, with happiness. They won't be walking around with the ultimate sadness. Do you know what the ultimate sadness is? It's amazing. I have people older than me. I'm 43. That come to me with the ultimate sadness. You know what that is? Rabbi, can you tell me what's my mission in life? What's my purpose? There's nothing sadder than that. To live your life and go through all the struggles, pains, heartbreak that we have to go through on planet Earth in the year 2011 and not to have a single meaning for it. I've quoted to you so many times, I suggest you read the book, Viktor Frankl, Man's Search for Meaning. He writes clearly, he was in the concentration camp, the difference between a person surviving or not from his own. I'm not talking about if he was killed. The difference of a person surviving or not is whether he understood, felt, tasted purpose, mission, fulfillment. Remove that and you're looking at an empty ghost. How happy can an empty ghost be? We're going to keep on trying to do things to create happiness. It won't happen. But if you do have that, then Hashem says, not only will you have your own happiness, but I'll complete your coin. I'll give you the fiery half shekel. I'll take you to a love which you never felt before. I'll take you to a happiness and a fulfillment that you'll never have before. Now I question this. Why is there a gift? If the whole purpose of creation is to earn, why is there a gift? To understand this, we need to understand. The love that we're talking about now is a love of selflessness. Please understand, contrary to Hollywood, which I'll talk about in a moment, one of my favorite places in the world, contrary to Hollywood, people do not know nor are they capable of being selfless. Do you know why? On a Kabbalistic level, creation, human beings are the product of cause and effect. And because they are the product of cause and effect, they therefore operate only on a means towards an end. That is the genetic of creation. Because we are a cause and effect. We are the effect of a cause. Therefore, our paradigm is stuck within a means to an end. And no matter how much I love God, and no matter how much I love helping people, there's always going to have to be the mevukash. What's in it for me? It doesn't have to be dollar signs. It could be something far more idealistic, but it's got to be something. It's just what I am. I am a product of the light. The light is an effect of the cause, which is the source of light. Therefore, I cannot fathom what it means not to have a cause and effect relationship. Therefore, I cannot fathom what it really means to have anything beyond a means towards an end. I'm doing Torah. Why? Tell me why. I'm doing mitzvot. Why? Why should I keep kosher? So it doesn't have to be a physical answer, it could be a spiritual answer, but there's got to be something in it for me. Again, parathetically speaking, the Rebbe once spoke about this in a very interesting fashion. The Rebbe, blessed memory, said by a Fabrengen once that the Jew wants to serve God without ego. So he hides because there's a verse that says, you shall be hidden in your ways with God. And then you hear the Rebbe chuckle, and the Rebbe says like this. The Rebbe says, and while he's hiding, doing the mitzvah, he hopes that someone finds him, not only to see that he was doing the mitzvah, but that he was hiding when he did the mitzvah. <laughs> it's not something that we should be upset at ourselves. Nature was created by God. The Talmud tells a story how a certain princess told a certain rabbi, sage, wow, are you ugly. He was ugly. And the sage turned around and said, go to the maker who made me. I didn't make myself ugly. When we talk about human nature, 
not that which we ingrained, selfish stuff. But when we talk about human nature, which is cause and effect, means to an end, you have nothing to be disgusted by yourself with. Because that is God's beautiful fingerprint in you. But with that being the case, it is impossible for me to ever really be selfless. And if I am selfless, it's because I know that by being selfless, I'm going to get into paradise. So it's again not selfless. Another parathetic speaking. I just want you to understand this process. So I once saw someone was hurting. And I, I prayed for him. And he told me, you should know that the Talmud says, he who prays, famous teaching, he who prays for his friend and he needs it, he'll be answered too. Not only that, he'll be answered first. So I looked at him and I smiled. I said, I know that I need what you need. But don't you get it? If I'm praying to you so that I should get answered, that I'm not praying for you. If I'm not praying for you, it doesn't work. There is no shtick. So I know that you need money, but I need money. It ain't working for me. I got a good plan. I'll pray for you in order that God should give me money. Because God said, if I pray for you and I need it, he'll give it to me too. So am I praying for you or am I praying for myself? Do you know what the sages say? The only kindness that you do that doesn't have an ulterior motive is a funeral. Because the man's dead. I don't want to argue with the Talmud, but I've been to enough funerals to know that people go to funerals also for ulterior motives. Because the people by the funeral, they have business dealings with, and it's the son, and the brother, and the sister, and the this, and the that. If I don't show up, I'm going to lose the account. So even there, we're challenged. But look how far the Talmud goes. Now you understand why the second level of love isn't the act of, it's the gift of. The type of joy that you experience when you're selfless is infinite. It's not driven by an external factor of I'm looking for something and I'm getting it. It is. It's infinite joy based upon infinite love, based upon selfless service to God. So now let's talk back about the verse. God told Moses, lift the head of the Jews. I shared with you what that means in level number one. What does it mean in level number two? Because even in level number two, Moses has to lift our head. We can't create this love, but we could get in the way of this love. I want to repeat this. There's sometimes you need to create something. Get to work. What are you, what are you complaining? Get to work. But then there's something you can't create, but you could get into its way. So Moses lifts our head so that we don't get in the way that after we finish the act of love, the act of happiness, then we can now have the introduction of the gift of God. But if I get in the way, then even if I am ready for the gift, I'm not allowing you to give me a gift. Tell me about it. I do fundraising many times where people want to give and for whatever reason I get in the way. So a gift doesn't mean you're going to get it. Get out of the way and then you'll get it. So let's talk about how does Moses prepare us for this. How Moses prepares for this is a total different level of faith. You see, there's the faith that comes from seeing. That means there's something outside of me, I see it and it affects me. Then there's the faith that comes not from the outside, but by Moses enabling the revelation of the essence of your soul. Let me say that again. Moses is not going to teach you what God's thinking. Moses is going to reveal to you that in the essence of your soul is God. Because the essence of your soul is a piece of God. By revealing that within you, what you're now introducing is that there is not even a mevukash. There is no goal. I don't love God because he helps me reach fulfillment. I love God because the essence of my soul is God. God and God loves God. The experience of that joy is a total different dimension. It's not I'm lacking and when I get, I'll be happy. Or as I'm getting, I'm happy. There is nothing lacking. Here the job of Moses is lift the brain, lift the paradigm 
that Jewish people, humans and the entire human race, should no more look in the mirror and identify themselves by their body shape. There's something deeper than that. I refer to the body as a leased car. How many of us identify ourselves by our leased car? And then the lease is up. You return the car and you go out of the car. Moses is here to tell us the essence of who you are is God. You don't need to get close to God. You are God. I got to be careful how I say these words, but I hope you understand what I'm saying. When Moses reveals that essence, then obviously it's selfless. God's doing something for God for a reason. How does that work? So you now enter the dimension of it is. The joy of that experience is a gift. Guys, let's wrap it up. Our daily life. What I'm sharing with you in our daily life is that life is about the act and not about the gift. Don't live life for the gift. Live life for the act because that's living. Then you make room for the gift. I told you I was going to talk about Hollywood. So here's my plug for my dear friends in Hollywood. How perverted their presentation of love and joy is. Because in the Hollywood dimension, you start your relationship with the gift of selfless love. And then somewhere along the lines it goes bad and he cheats and she, it's a balagan. How perverted. There is no marriage that starts with the gift of love. It starts with living the act of love. Day by day, creating the act of love. It's perverse to believe. I looked him in the eyes. Bell started ringing. I would have walked off a plank for him. It's not real. That's not joy. Real joy is, you know, there's something to get to know him. I think we could be soulmates. And you work on it. You make him earn your love. You work on earning his love. You work on creating a love for him. Down the line, when your grandchildren are married and you're sitting on a rocking chair, then you'll look each other in the eye and maybe have a moment, a glimpse of the gift of love. Then you'll have the gift of happiness. But that's not life. That's retirement. Life is the action, creation of love, which I told you is a soulmate to joy. So what we're talking about here is the act of happiness. It begins with, in your personal life, just like in the global universal life, if you don't have a mivukash, if you're floating around like a driven leaf, wondering where the wind's going to blow you next, don't expect love and don't expect joy. But if you're willing to sit down and create a mivukash, I have a mission, I have a purpose, and I have a fulfillment. And it isn't one that's going to run out on me when I turn 65 and plastic surgery doesn't help no more. It's real. It's intrinsic. It touches me from the inside out. When you have that type of mivukash, you concentrate on it, you feel it, you live it, then you have the joy of day by day being it, getting closer, connecting. In closing, in closing, I shared with you that there is a doorway to both loves. There is a therefore doorway to both joys. And what it depends upon is what you've heard me spoke about, speak about ever since I started HaChayim, the Life Institute. I've shared with you time and time again, my understanding and goal of this institute that I created was for one reason. Can we bring the worm's eye of humanity, the bird's eye view of Torah? You see, when you have a worm's eye and life is all about the now of wealth, beauty, power, then it's a worm's eye. But if you want to experience true love and true happiness, you got to open yourself up to the bird's eye. That's the job of Moses. 
That was the job of Mordechai with the Jewish people in the times of Purim. That is the job of our Rebbe of Blessed Memory today. To give us a bird's eye view. So let me spell it out clearly for you. We're looking for a transition from the worm's eye fetching problems and damnation into the bird's eye view of happiness, mission, love, higher conscious. That's the only way to get into real love and into real happiness. And I'm done.